as you know, we've been, we've been going through the book of Acts. And when we read about the early church in Acts, we get this picture of men and women who are very bold. They live bold lives as followers of Jesus. Peter, for example, who had denied Jesus before he was crucified, was uh, denied him three times. And now in the book of Acts, we see him courageously, boldly, powerfully preaching the gospel. When he's imprisoned, they are strong in prison. When Peter and uh, John are preaching the gospel, they get put in prison, and, and later they're told by the Pharisees, hey, stop preaching, stop talking about this guy Jesus. And he says, we must obey God before we obey men. And then later there's a young man named Stephen who is stoned to death because of uh, his testimony. Paul even gets stoned in the city of Lystra later. And then the people think that he's dead and they drag him out to the edge of the city. You remember this story. They drag him out, leave him for dead. They think he's no longer living. And then what happens? This is the craziest part of that whole story. Is He gets up, the, the believers are around him, and he walks right back into the city and goes back in and, and, and speaks the gospel some more. I honestly have a hard time relating to that. I have fears. I have worries. I wonder sometimes if God is with me in my job and if He is in with me in the mission that He has ahead for me. And I know you do too. And yet what we see in this passage is that Paul also seems to be afraid. Right in the middle of the verse, he is the passage, he seems to be afraid and he is given a word from God to encourage him in his fears. God gives us this word in our fears. So I want us to look at two points of comfort when we have fear in life and in what God has called us to do. First, I want us to see how God is with you in the mission to which He has called you. And second, that He has given us a team. These are the ways that here we see God encouraging us in our fears. But first, let us pray. Father, we come to you because you have the words of life. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate to us your word, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit, that you would comfort us and challenge us, you would encourage us, and that you would equip us for the mission, for your mission, O oh Lord, in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, at the outset of this chapter, we see that there is a growing opposition to the gospel. You see in verse chapter in verse two, it says that when uh, when Paul went to Corinth, that Claudius the emperor had commanded he had just commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. What you need to know is that Emperor Claudius at this time had created two edicts. The first edict he made was in the year eighty forty one, and in this edict. He told the forty to 50,000 Jews who presently lived in the city of Rome that they could no longer worship their own God, but that they had to follow the Roman deities and follow pagan ways, and that they could no longer have their, their worship services. They couldn't go to the synagogue. 
This was their edict. This was a form of persecution. Why? why? I mean, why would he do that? Why would the emperor do that? The reason was because it was a reaction, and many think it was a reaction to the Jewish and Christian missionary activity. See, many times there had been disturbances in synagogues and uh, Jewish leaders had registered complaints in the courts, just like they're doing in this chapter. And the Roman policy is whenever there's disorder, you squelch it. And so what they did is made this edict, no more. And it didn't work. And so then, in AD 49, about the time that this is happening in Acts chapter 18, Emperor Claudius made his second edict. And his second edict uh, basically said, okay, Jews, you all have to leave Rome. 40 to 50,000 of you, you guys have to leave. And the reason was, there's a historian who said, it was because men of foreign birth who constantly made disturbance at the instigation of one named Christ. So it was because of Christianity that these Jews had to leave Rome. Now think about it. Think about it if you're one of these Jews who is from Rome. How are you going to feel at that moment when you have to leave? I'd be personally pretty angry. You have all your religious liberties taken away, you have your freedoms taken away, and now you have to leave your home. This is the environment in which Paul comes to Corinth. Because many of those those Roman Jews would likely have gone to Corinth. And so what we see here is a situation in which the opposition is growing. The conflicts are escalating and the problems are becoming more intense. And yet we see in verse 4 of, of chapter 18, it says that, and yet Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. You know, when we oftentimes come against opposition, when we are, people disagree with us, what's our tendency? Somebody gets angry at you, you start to get loud back, right? What this passage here is saying is that when he was in the synagogue, what he was doing is he was reasoning with them. The Greek word is dialegato, which means he was dialoguing with them. He was having conversation with them. Yelling is not reasoning. Once uh, I was at EPCC uh, with a couple students, and one of them was a younger Christian, and we're passing out flyers to people, asking them if they're interested in coming to a Bible study. So we're passing out flyers, and we're passing out flyers. And the guy, one of the students, the young the guy who's a younger Christian, he passes out a flyer to somebody. The guy takes the flyer, and he says... I will never go to a Bible study because you Christians are all hypocrites. Now, instead of being like, okay, I understand that you think this sometimes and that sometimes Christians are hypocrites. You know what he did? His reaction was, no, no, they're not. You're the hypocrite. (laughs) Which I actually kind of think probably just proved the guy's point. See, Paul, when we, get, when we come against opposition, sometimes we just want to gah, get, get angry back. But what Paul was doing is he was reasoning, he was dialoguing, having a conversation with them. And it says that he was persuasive. Not that he just 
tried to be persuasive, but the Greek verb is that he was actually being persuasive. How do we know that? Because Christus, the leader of the synagogue, became a Christian. He was actually persuasive. How do we be persuasive? What does it mean to try and be persuasive when we talk to others about the good news of Jesus? Being persuasive simply means to explain the truth of God in a way that is clear, engaging the mind, and that comes from a conviction deep within your own heart. This is how it is to try and communicate the good news in a persuasive way. Yes, sometimes people will oppose you. I used to teach middle school boys Sunday school class. And one time I was actually teaching this passage, Acts chapter 18. We're talking about how sometimes people don't like you for preaching the gospel or for being a Christian. Now what I knew also was that a lot of these middle school guys were just annoying and obnoxious. And what I said to them is that, look, you think that maybe that people don't like you because you're being a Christian. But really it's just because you're obnoxious. See, we need to, to be like Paul in some ways. Even when there is growing opposition, we still seek to dialogue, to have a conversation, and seek to be persuasive as much as is possible from our own end. And yet sometimes people will reject us, as they did here in Paul, as he's preaching to the synagogue. One time I was... Um, in college, I was evangelizing a student, building a relationship with another student, and he was really receptive for a while. He never heard the gospel before, and we were talking and having these great conversations. And then a couple weeks later, something just clicked, switched in his mind. And I ran into him in the bathroom at the student union one time, and I was like, hey dude, how's it going? And he started to swear at me and yell at me. And he was super angry at me. In fact, he even lodged a complaint with the vice president of student affairs against me. Now, I was trying to love him, and I was not being in any way offensive. But something changed, and he was adamantly angry at me. You see, sometimes, even when you try to be as persuasive as possible, and you try to reason with people and, and seek to have a dialogue, sometimes people will still oppose you, like they did Paul. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22-24, he says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you go to this picture, you see the gospel is foolishness to lots of people. You know, it's no wonder that the very first depiction of Jesus in the first century was a piece of graffiti uh, picturing Jesus as a donkey on a cross. And I don't know if you, you notice there's a very pronounced bottom on there on the cross. But there's a donkey being crucified on a cross. And, the, and the, the, the words at the bottom say, Alexa Memnos worships his God. See, you Christians, you all just worship a donkey who died on a cross. 
foolishness. The truth is, there is an absolute foolishness to the gospel. There is this reality in which it just seems foolish. So, I mean, are you afraid sometimes to to talk about the gospel, to tell about the death, burial, the crucifixion of Jesus, because you're afraid that maybe people might think you're a little bit weird? Or maybe it's a little bit offensive? The truth is, it is. It is foolish. It is weird. I mean, think about what we believe as Christians. We believe that 2,000 years ago, a man was born of a virgin. This man also was God. He did miracles. He lived the perfect life. He died on a cross to take away the sins that we could not take away. And then he, after staying in the grave for three days, he eventually got out of the grave because he was dead. He no longer was dead. And then he hung out with a bunch of people, appeared to a bunch of people, and then 40 days later, he went up into God's presence and disappeared from our presence, physically. And then one day, he's going to come back again and wipe away all the tears of our faces and set everything at right. It is incredible. But it's also strange, is it not? I mean, we have to come to grips. It is a strange message, but it is incredible. As, as Paul would say, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. So maybe you don't necessarily completely believe the gospel yet. But I want to agree with you and say that, yeah, it is strange. But you know what? God's strangeness, God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. And so consider it. And so we can be of courage when we share the gospel amidst opposition. Because it is still God's truth. And yet, even though Paul knew this, and even though Paul was proclaiming the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, persuading them, um, he was still afraid. He was angry even at one point. And I find comfort by this, the fact that Paul himself, the, the great Paul, the driven and fearless Paul, was a little bit afraid at this moment. And so God gives him a vision in the night. And this is the vision. You find it in verse 9 and 10. The vision that God gives Paul when he's afraid. He says, And the Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. See, this bold man, Paul, even he needed to be reminded that God was with him. And he was told two promises, two results of, of God being with him here. One, it says that he's, he's specifically told that because God is with him, that no one would do harm to him here. And actually, we see that later in this chapter. Not only do they not do harm, they try to bring a complaint against the government, against him. They try to bring him to court. And what happens is, is 
Christianity actually gets established as part of Judaism, which means that in this place, Christianity has official sanction. So in the process of them trying to um, bring him down and hurt him, he actually gets established, and Christianity gets established. And so it was true, no one would harm him here. And he also says, the second part is that God had many people on Corinth. At this point, there were not a lot of Christians yet. But God says, there are many, I have many. And so he's saying that part of the promise is that God would bring many conversions. And I hope and I pray and I believe that this is also true for us here in the Tierras neighborhood and in El Paso. And I know for a fact that God has many people here in El Paso. And I believe that He has more. But what part of this promise, specifically, can I say is a vision of God for you? Specifically, what part of this promise from this vision that Paul has given is meant for me, to encourage me? I mean, for example, last, last week, Emmanuel was talking about the missionaries, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who were uh, flying into Ecuador to evangelize and bring the gospel to, to the Laurani Indians. And you know, as the story goes, is as soon as they flew in, they got there into the jungle, and they were speared to death. Now imagine if I just took this passage, and I was talking to them and said, God is with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Oops. But we could say with that story that God had many people in that place because later many would come to, to faith in, in Jesus. So I can't absolutely say that no one's going to harm you. I can't say that. What of this, what of this is for us? What I can say, what we can say here is that God is with you. Specifically in this context, what we're saying is that God is with you in the mission to which He has called you. God is with you in the mission to which He has called you. I mean, think about it in the Bible. How often God says, I am with you. When Isaac is uh, trying to be established in the land and he's got this big herd of, of sheep and camels and he's facing this uh, enemy because of um, all the, the water disputes. This is what, what God says to him in Genesis 26. He says, Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you. Jacob, when he's running away from his brother because of his own stupid decisions that he had made, God is gracious to him and he says to him in a vision of the night, Behold, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Or think about the Israelites when they're in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 20 it says, When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and you see chariots and you see armies that are much larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, the God who brought you out of Egypt. Or Joshua 1.9, when they're about to go into the land and take the land as they've been promised. 
What is, we know this verse. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And even to Solomon, when he's building the temple and there's a huge engineering feat and a huge accomplishment, his father says to him, be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. This is the, the, the constant statement of the prophets before they went into exile. Jeremiah, when they're in exile, and the post-exile prophets after they had come back into the land. And Jeremiah, when he begins his life and he begins his mission, he's terrified because he's a young kid. And this is what God says in Jeremiah chapter 1. He says, Do not be afraid, for I am with you to deliver you. See, this is one of the great promises of God that when you are given a mission from Him, He is with you. God is with you in the mission to which He has called you. But what does this mean? What does this mean, God is with you? What does it mean to encourage and comfort my heart to know that God is with me when I fear and when I am despairing? How does this comfort us? When we say that He is with you, what we are saying is that not only is He with you, but your very life belongs to Him. Our only comfort is what we are saying. Our only hope, as long as we live, and our only hope when we die, is that you and I belong to Jesus, who is our very faithful Savior. And this gives us much hope. The last couple of weeks I was in, in Juarez and I was uh, going on pastoral visits with the pastor of Frontera de Gracia. And we were visiting uh, one, one family. She's a single mom with five boys. And none of the fathers were in the picture. They all had left. And she was absolutely despairing of life. Depressed completely in a word just completely devoid of hope what do you say to somebody like that when they are actually asking you for help what do you say well what we said was you belong to Jesus although your life is horrible right now and you see no hope you belong to him And so there is hope. There is always hope. This is what it means for us to know that God is with us. And so do you struggle? Are you afraid at times? Does your sin sometimes beat down upon you like this crazy hot June sun and take away all of your energy? Do you feel sometimes like life is miserable and hopeless? You belong to Jesus. You are His. And so as long as you have breath in your body, there is hope. And he is in, you are in His strong hands. And the day when you breathe your last, you will be in His presence. And the joy will be incredible.
And so there is hope, always, because you belong to Jesus. This is what it means for us to say that God is with us. That you belong to Jesus, who is your faithful Savior. And so there is hope. We do not need to fear. So you know what this means for, meant for Paul and what this means for us? It means that we can be certain that He is with us in the mission to which He has called us. And we can continue and persevere. My grandfather was a pastor for many, many years, and he tells us this story that he was pushing a friend who was um, in the end of his life, he's in a wheelchair, he's pushing his friend in a wheelchair into a nursing home. And as he's pushing his friend into the nursing home, the doors open, and sometimes nursing homes can have a really strong smell. And this one did. And as as he's pushing his friend into the wheelchair, uh, in the wheelchair, into the nursing home, his friend smells the smell and goes, ooh. Then he looks up at my, my grandfather, looks him in the eyes, and he goes, ah, my last mission field. See, we have hope because you belong to God. And so, He is with you in whatever mission He has called you to, no matter how difficult, no matter how smelly, no matter how hard it may be. And so Paul stayed another year and a half in this place, even though he was afraid, and he preached and proclaimed the gospel. Not only was he strengthened by the knowledge that God was directly with him, he was also strengthened by other Christians. You see, in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, the second part of the vision, he says, I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So not only does this phrase mean that many would come to faith, What he's also saying is that there are many other Christians here to help you. There will be. What what God is basically saying to us is that God's mission and living the Christian life is a team effort. We can't do it by ourselves. I mean, think about it here in in this chapter as Paul is trying to start a mission in Corinth as they're trying to establish the church in in Corinth. Think about how many people are involved here and in different ways. You look at verse 2. There's a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. What they offer is fellowship because he doesn't know anybody when he gets there. He finds them and they have fellowship. And he stays with them in their home which was probably part of the marketplace, a place in the marketplace. And they help him establish his work because he's a tent maker by trade. And therefore, this also gives him a platform to start ministry. So there's Priscilla and Aquila. And later in Romans chapter 16, Paul would say about Priscilla and Aquila that they risked their neck for him. They risked their lives to help him here. And then we see in verse 5, there's Silas and there's Timothy. And they come. And when they come, what they are bringing 
is financial help from the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica when they're coming from Macedonia. And it says that when they came, Paul was completely devoted to the preaching of the gospel, to the ministry of the word. See, they had brought the financial resources so that Paul, although tent making was a great job for him, it didn't allow him to steward his, his vocation as, as the apostle. And so when, Paul, when Silas and Timothy come, he is blessed with the financial resources so that he can be fully devoted to the ministry of proclaiming the word of God. So there's Paul, I mean, there's Silas and Timothy, and there's the churches of Thessalonica and Philippi that are helping. There's also a man named Titius Justus. We see in verse 7 that the church is set up in his house when he's kicked out of the synagogue. And so this man's house becomes the base for missions. His house becomes basically the house church. So there's missionary partners, there's co-workers, there's churches, there's people who open up their house. See, it took a team for anything to get started in Corinth. God's mission, and even our Christian lives, is a team effort. So what we see happening here is that the church, because of teamwork in the gospel, the strategies are more effective, their resources and spiritual gifts are better represented and and stewarded, and the mission of God goes forward because they're a team. And yet, oftentimes, it doesn't seem like the people in the church, people in the family, are our closest teammates. They don't even sometimes feel like important teammates in life. In our worst moments, we're kind of like an elementary school football team in sports camp. I don't know if you guys, some of you were all at sports camp. I was the assistant to the coach of the football teams. And uh, it was pretty crazy. See, there's, there's always, when you're, when you're doing sports with kids, and we're trying to teach, I'm trying to teach football to eight-year-olds, okay? And so there's that one kid who's like, I love football so much! And he's the quarterback, and he, what he ends up doing is he ends up running it and never passes the ball to anybody, never hands it off to anybody else. It's like a one-man show. There are sometimes people like that in the church who think of themselves as spiritually independent, say, oh, as long as I've got my Bible, I've got my Christian music, I've got ministry to do, then I don't really know, why do I need this church thing? There was this other kid in uh, sports camp who was over in the corner most of the time picking dandelions, just totally oblivious to what's going on. And I just go, come on, come on. Some people sometimes wander in church now and then completely oblivious that there's anything else going on in the church life besides Sunday morning. There's this other girl who's, who's at the sports camp, and she's like, I definitely don't like football, and I'm not going to have fun. The funny thing was, she actually was the one who caught the long bomb touchdown at the very end, making the, the game-winning touchdown pass. <coughs> Sydney, Webano. <laughs> 
sometimes there are people who are coming to church and like, I don't want to be here. Only here because my family makes me and I'm totally bored out of my mind. Man, I pray and hope that you guys experience the great joy of finding Jesus. It's a greater joy than catching a touchdown in a small kid's football game. Then there was this last kid. There was the last kid who was totally also oblivious. And he's on the defense of the football game. And he's on defense and he comes up to me and he says, Jeff, I'm going to be the bait. Please, take me. <laughs> so like he's running around like pretending he's the bait of the football team on defense. Like That does not make any sense whatsoever. There's no bait in football. There's no bait in sports anyways. I thought we were playing sharks and fishies. But some people are so confused coming to church, thinking, like uh, Brandon was talking about earlier, as he was talking, oh, it's all about that guilt thing. I have to be bait. I, take me. I have to do this some self-sacrifice thing. And at the end of the football camp, you know, I, I just had to ask, are you guys even on the same team? Are you playing the same sport? Sometimes that's what it feels like in, in, in the family of God. Like, are we on the same team? Are we even playing the same sport? And yet, what we see here is the mission of God goes forward in Corinth only because they partner as a team in the gospel. God's mission and the Christian life is a team effort. Why? Because it is a family the church is God's family. Ephesians 2, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 4 talk about the church being the household of God. And here's the good news. is that Jesus is God's one and only beloved Son. And when you and I put our trust in Jesus, you and I become sons and daughters of God. And so theologically and biblically, what that means is if I'm a son of God and you're a daughter of God, what does that make us? It makes us family. It makes us brothers and sisters. We are kin. We are one household. This is how the Bible talks about who you and I are. We are a family that has been put together by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Himself. And because of this, the Spirit is thicker than blood. Because the Spirit comes from the blood of Jesus, which is the most important of all blood. And so the mission of God and the Christian life is a team effort because we are family. And although on Father's Day and other days we like to celebrate biological fathers and family members, and our human nature tends to see that our loyalty extends only to our biological family. This is kind of our way of thinking about it. In Anglo, in, in Anglo cultures, this definition of loyalty extends to the family of 4.3, mom, dad, and the 2.3 children. In most Hispano cultures, this, this loyalty extends to the family of 43, cousins and, and siblings and aunts and uncles and whatever. But either way, the Bible turns this upside down and changes it and says, your loyalty and your love extends to the household, the family of God. 
Because their loyalty and their love is for you. Because the mission of God and your Christian life is a team effort. And even though at times the church family may seem really weird, and we may not feel close to them at all, to each other, they are your family. Truly and really your family. And they are for you. And and you are supposed to be for them. And this is what I think is how partly how Paul is encouraged, even when he is a little bit afraid in Corinth. And so when we are afraid to talk about Jesus, we are reminded that God is with us. He is with us because you belong to Him. And so you don't need to be afraid. But not only that, you have a family. You have a team who is with you and who is for you. So we don't need to be afraid and we can go forward in the mission together. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pray for this, our church, Las Tierras Community Church. We pray that you would help us to welcome those who are not yet part of your family. That we would go out and seek them, just like your servant Paul did. Strengthen us, encourage us, because we are your family. You have bought us by the precious blood of Jesus. And so we just say thank you. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.